0: Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. The king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, And if your servant has found favor in your sight, do you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it? The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to given me to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the true and living God. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. And beloved, it is worth us giving our full attention over to this morning. May we never become bored with the reading and the preaching of the Word of God. Now last Sunday we began a new sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. If you were not with us, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to last week's sermon. Just so you have a clear understanding of the context of this book, where it sits in the history of the Bible, where it sits in the history of God's people. Uh, I really do not have time every week to give a comprehensive background to when and why this book was written. So please, if you've not yet done so, listen to last week's sermon. Because having that knowledge, understanding when and why this book was written is going to... Be essential to understanding everything that we are talking about week after week as we read through this book. Now last week we were introduced to this man, Nehemiah, who was a Jew, a Jew living in exile, exile in the Persian Empire. We learned that Nehemiah received word from other Jews that despite current restoration efforts led by the scribe Ezra to rebuild the holy city of Jerusalem, especially the wall around the city, things were not going well in the holy city. In fact, the wall around that city was still left in ruin from when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked and destroyed that city some 140 years prior to the events in Nehemiah so Nehemiah was greatly grieved when he received this news. He knew that if Jerusalem was to ever be secure, if the restoration of the Jews to the Holy Land was ever going to happen, if Israel's spiritual restoration and renewal was to ever succeed, that protective wall around Jerusalem had to be rebuilt. As long as the wall around the Holy City was torn down, as long as it was in disrepair, Jerusalem was vulnerable to both physical attacks, yes, but also spiritual attacks. And so the Lord put a desire in Nehemiah's heart, I think, to petition the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, to allow, ask the king to allow him to go to Jerusalem to oversee the rebuilding efforts. But as we saw last week, Nehemiah, instead of going directly to the king, he instead goes before the Lord in prayer. He confesses his sins. He confesses the sins of his people. He reminds the Lord of his covenant promises. He praises the Lord. He worships the Lord for his steadfast love. And as we saw... Lastly, given the months that are mentioned in both Nehemiah chapter 1 and here in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, Nehemiah persisted in this type of prayer for about four months. Four months of persistent prayer to the Lord. And let me remind you again, beloved, this type of persistent, deep and rich prayer, it was the foundation for everything that would happen throughout the book of Nehemiah. This book is really the true story of the Lord doing a restorative work in and through His people. It is a book about, yes, spiritual restoration, but more importantly, spiritual, or I'm sorry, physical restoration, but more importantly, it is a book about spiritual renewal, even we might say, revival. And for us as a church today, we must know, if we desire spiritual renewal within our midst as a church, then our lives as individuals and our life as a church has to be grounded in, saturated with, persistent, genuine, biblical prayer. The work of restoration and of renewal is a work that we are incapable of doing. It is a work that only our Lord God can do. And so if we desire this for our church, if we desire restoration, as Nehemiah desired restoration for Jerusalem, then we must seek our Lord's face. We must seek His will. We must seek His blessing if we are to see restoration in our church. Today, our text declares to us how it is that the Lord answers Nehemiah's four-month-long persistent prayer session. So we look at this passage today. Uh, What I do want to spend some time focusing on is the faithfulness of this man, Nehemiah. Uh, One thing I'm very wary to do is to do sort of character studies of people in the Bible. You know, this whole, let's look at the life of so-and-so and and see what we can learn and apply to ourselves today. Rarely do those kinds of approaches handle the biblical texts well. And I think Nehemiah is a victim of that sort of character study more than maybe some of the other Old Testament people we read about. Because many people come to Nehemiah and say, oh, here's a man we can look at and use as a case study, a model, if you will, of effective leadership. That's how many people treat Nehemiah. Here are leadership principles that we can gain by reading the book of Nehemiah. I'm not interested... In doing anything like that. But, with that said, I think the quality of faith that Nehemiah shows in his life, especially in our text today, it should not be overlooked. We should not overlook Nehemiah's faithfulness. Because what we see here is truly a man who is living out his faith in all areas of his life. You see, real genuine faith not simply relegated to one portion of his life, but you see his faith defining his entire life. And I think that were we, were our church, to truly experience spiritual renewal, then, we, and then, it, then I think it needs to be said that this church needs Christians who are Christians all the time. Not just on Sunday mornings, We need Christians who are Christians when you are with your families. We need people who are Christians when you are at school, at work, when you're in the voting booth. We need Christians who are Christians when you're watching movies and listening to music. Whatever it is, whenever it is, we need people who are Christians in the whole of their life. Nehemiah, in a real sense, is that sort of man. A man of true, genuine faith in the whole of his life. And we see it in this text in two main areas. We see it first in his faithfulness in society. Then we see it secondly in his faithfulness in his vocation. Now last week our passage ended with Nehemiah mentioning he was cupbearer to the king. That's quite a significant statement, beloved. We should understand being a cupbearer to the king was a big deal. Kings were constantly under threat, especially the kings of Persia, which was the most powerful empire in the earth at that time. They were always subject to assassination attempts. They were always subject to military coups. And one way through which assassination was often attempted was by poisoning the food and the wine of the king. It actually happened several times in the history of Persia up until this point. There was more than one attempt at poisoning the king by uh, giving him some nasty stuff in his wine. And so cupbearers, it was their job to eat and drink any food that was going to be served to the king. It was their job to eat and drink of it first, to make sure it was not poisoned. So this was not a job that, anyone, that just anyone could be entrusted with. The servant chosen for this role had to be proven to be incredibly trustworthy. More trustworthy, really, than anyone else in the entire empire because the very life of the king was in his hands. Uh, the cupbearers were so trusted, in fact, that oftentimes, in, modern, in our modern context, they served as a, basically a prime minister-type role. So here's Nehemiah. He's not a Persian. He's a Jew. He's an exile, living in a foreign land. One who did not worship the god of the Persians, One who was faithful in his life to the Lord. And yet, he is one who has risen to what some might say is the second highest rank in the empire. Just how trusted was Nehemiah, by the way. If you look at verse 6, you notice that Nehemiah says the queen was sitting by the king's side. That little detail there says a lot because queens did not typically uh, join kings at official public banquets. So the fact that the queen was there shows us that wherever Nehemiah was serving the king at that moment, it was a small, private, intimate gathering. This is how trusted Nehemiah was. That he was the one who would be the cupbearer even for these small, intimate gatherings. You see, beloved, Nehemiah is showing us what it means to be faithful in a pagan society. He participated clearly in Persian society. He did not withdraw from secular culture, but he participated in society without compromising his morals, without compromising his values, his ethics, his faith. Everything we know about this man tells us he's an uncompromising, devout Jewish man. In fact, you will see as we Uh, progress in our study in the book of Nehemiah, just how uncompromising he is. It is hard to think that Nehemiah was was the sort who went around saying things like, well, I personally think that this or that is wrong. I personally am against this or that. But who am I to push that in the public square? Who am I to push my religion on anyone? That's not the kind of wishy-washy person Nehemiah was. He had none of that silly nonsense in him. He was a man who would not deny his Lord before men. He was a man who was not ashamed of his God. He was a man who was not ashamed of the law, the word of his God, and what the law, the word of his God said. And he would not try to find some sort of middle road or compromise with pagans. And yet, he was considered by those pagans, by that pagan society to be a deep man of integrity, so much so that he rose to the rank of cupbearer to the king. You see, the same integrity, beloved, which would lead a man or a woman of faith to not compromise, it is the same integrity that truly does develop a level of trust in people. It is because, not in spite of, but it is because of Nehemiah's uncompromising faith that the Lord elevated him to such a level in the most powerful empire in the world. It's interesting, too, if you look down at verse 8, a man named Asaph is mentioned, one who is keeper of the king's forests. Asaph is not a Persian name. Asaph is a Hebrew name. Now we don't know for sure, but I think it's very likely that here is another faithful Jew who because of his uncompromising faith in and to the Lord was able to rise to a position of great authority in the Persian Empire. This is a pattern you see play out in the lives of faithful Jews throughout the exile period. Whether it is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezra, Nehemiah, you see faithful Jews serving the Lord in the whole of their life. Faithful to serve the Lord in that pagan society. And because of their unwavering faith, they rise to prominent positions in this empire. And this is exactly what the Lord, by the way, told the exiles to do. He didn't tell them when you go into exile, withdraw, live in a little Israel all on your own, and don't engage with the Babylonians or the Persians. No, He said Jeremiah 29, verses 4-7. through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon: Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, and that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Live life, beloved, in the world. Not of the world, but live life in the world. Be faithful to your Lord, uncompromisingly so. Serve your society, your culture well. That is what Nehemiah was doing. His faithfulness then in society, you see how it translates to faithfulness in his vocation, in his work, in his, yes, calling, if you want to use that word, as a cupbearer. Here was Nehemiah. We know he spent the last four months grieving, fasting, praying, and still he faithfully performed the task as cupbearer. He did his job well, beloved. He did not use his personal life as an excuse to shirk responsibilities. He didn't call off work needing personal days all the time because he felt emotionally vulnerable. Now, there are times when such things are appropriate. There are times when a person needs time off from their worldly vocation to truly grieve. I recognize that. But I think maybe in the modern era, we tend to think of ourselves as being more fragile than we really are. Maybe even use every little thing that distresses us as an excuse to shirk our responsibilities. That's not the man Nehemiah was. I am certain Nehemiah had a sense that it was indeed the Lord's blessing that he was able to serve in such a prominent position. And surely Nehemiah knew that to serve the king faithfully in his worldly vocation was to serve the Lord faithfully. And so in faithfulness to God, Nehemiah did his his worldly vocation well He served the king faithfully. And I think that's a challenge for you and me this morning, beloved. Many of you, I know, probably have jobs that are not works of passion. Some of you, maybe most of you, have bosses that frustrate you. Understand what Nehemiah understood here. The daily work you do, it matters because you're ultimately doing it to the glory of God the bosses, the supervisors, the employers you serve, you're not ultimately serving them. You're serving the Lord. How you conduct yourself in your worldly vocation is ultimately how you are conducting yourself before the thrice-holy trying God. Think about that. Do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord and desire to serve Him faithfully? Then, beloved, serve Him faithfully the whole of your life, including how you perform your work and then how you honor your earthly authorities. Perform your worldly vocations well, knowing that as you faithfully perform your work, you are indeed faithfully serving the Lord. This is the, the whole of life faithfulness of Nehemiah. His faith penetrated every part of his life. He didn't view his life, in other words, in terms of secular and sacred. This part of my life is the life that's influenced by faith. This part of my life is my Christian life or whatever. But then I have all these other secular things. No. He was faithful to the Lord in the whole of his life. And listen, there's a point here to this. This is not just Christian morality for the sake of Christian morality. Because as you understand that this is how Nehemiah lived, how he did engage with and in society, how he did his daily work, then you begin to realize it's in this context that the Lord answers Nehemiah's persistent prayer request. The Lord, through this daily service to the king and to the empire, brought about the opportunity for his work of restoration to be advanced. Do you understand that? Your worldly vocation, it may be hard for you to understand. Your engagement in society, it may be hard to understand this, but the reality is it is kingdom work. Because Nehemiah served the king faithfully, the Lord brought about the opportunity for His work of restoration to advance. For His kingdom to advance. That's not just true of Nehemiah. That is true of your life. That is true of my life. It was in the service to the king that God answered Nehemiah's prayer and gave him the opportunity Nehemiah was looking for. As in verse 2, Nehemiah says, the king noticed sadness. In the face of Nehemiah for the first time. This is the beginning of God answering Nehemiah's request. How did the king know Nehemiah? Or I'm sorry, how well the king must have known Nehemiah that he could instantly tell that this sadness on Nehemiah's face was not from sickness, meaning no one poisoned the food or drink, but rather it was heartache, So the king, the most powerful man on the planet at the time. Again, we cannot underestimate how powerful the king of Persia was. The king inquires of Nehemiah, what is wrong? At first, Nehemiah is afraid. And, you know, why is he afraid? He seems to have this great relationship with the king. Why is he afraid? I think there are probably a few reasons. First, as I said, do not underestimate how powerful Artaxerxes was. The man basically held almost every human life in his hand at that time. His empire was extremely vast. Uh, The Greek empire was growing, uh, but Artaxerxes, he's the one right now. In terms of the ancient world, his empire was not Persian. It was global. So why shouldn't there be, even for a trusted advisor, a sense of fear and trembling in the presence of this man? What if the king, for example, understood Nehemiah's sadness as, man, maybe Nehemiah has some treasonous intent going on in his mind? It's not outside the pitch, not, not outside the realm of possibility for the king to assume that. Secondly, understand this what Nehemiah is about to request from the king, and I have no doubt. That when the king asks him what's wrong, Nehemiah immediately recognizes the Lord's opening the door. This is the answer to the prayer. What, what Nehemiah is about to request to the king is nothing short of asking the king to reverse his policy. Ezra chapter 4. I mentioned it last week. The Jews attempted to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in Ezra chapter 4. And the king, King Artaxerxes, this very same king, put the kibosh on it. After all, the king's thinking, why did the Jews need to build, build a wall around their city? Why would they need that kind of protection? What were the Jews up to? And so it was no small thing for Nehemiah to make this request, to come to the king, because he's asking him, "I need you to reverse your stated policy." And yet, this is what Nehemiah was praying for for four months. The time had finally come, and perhaps another source of Nehemiah's fear then, I think, is the realization he probably had that if if he messes this up, if he makes a wrong step, if he says the wrong thing, he probably will not get another opportunity to make this request to the king. So there's a lot on the line here. A lot which would cause Nehemiah to be afraid. But I want you to notice the wisdom, the tact that Nehemiah uses. I think it's truly godly wisdom. Wisdom that came only after four months of spending time In fellowship, in communion, in persistent prayer with the Lord. Nehemiah doesn't say to the king, you know, because of you, and this would have been true. It's the king's policy which led to the state of Jerusalem. He doesn't say to the king, because of you, my homeland line's in ruin and we can't rebuild it. No. The first thing Nehemiah says is let the king live forever. And I think he meant it. I think it was a sincere declaration. It wasn't just a polite thing to say. When Nehemiah says, let the king live forever, he is making it known to the king, listen, whatever I am about to tell you, know that I have your best interests at heart. And whatever I'm requesting, it is out of no treasonous intent. It's very wise of him. And he says, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He doesn't even mention the name of Jerusalem, does he? Now, no, no doubt, Artaxerxes knows the city is Jerusalem, but Nehemiah's pleading. He's pleading to the heart here. He's tugging on heartstrings a little bit. As if to say, listen, King I understand there are political concerns. This is not a political issue for me. This is about my people. This is about my family. This is about my father. This is a personal issue for me. It's extremely wise. And the wisdom in this tactic is extremely effective. Because the king responds, what are you requesting? What do you want, Nehemiah? Just tell me. Notice again how Nehemiah responds. He doesn't just blurt out his answer, does he? He says, verse 4, he prayed. It was spontaneous prayer. A holy instinct, beloved, of going to the Lord spontaneously and I think most likely asking for wisdom, clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and praising God that the moment had come the Lord had answered his prayer. This is the answer. As I said last week, the work of spiritual restoration begins with prayer. But prayer must also saturate the work. Prayer is not just something you do to kick off the work of restoration. You must persist in prayer throughout the entire work of restoration. And here we see it, Nehemiah is saturating this work in perpetual prayer, which because he spent the last four months in perpetual prayer, prayer, it produced within him, I think, a holy instinct of spontaneous prayer before he took action, before he spoke. He prays before he speaks. And by the way, beloved, I think many of us could do well to do the same thing. Take a minute before we say something to someone and pray to the Lord. How might our conversations be very different if we did as Nehemiah does here. He petitions the Lord, and then he makes his request. And it is a remarkable request, beloved. He just goes for it. He doesn't kind of you know tip his toe in the water. Now, there isn't any of this. Well, maybe I'll ask for $10. And if he says, yeah, I'll give you $10, maybe I'll say, oh, I forgot about this. How about an additional five? You know, there's none of that nonsense. He just goes in. He lays a full-orbed, comprehensive, detailed request. Nehemiah asked the king for basically a governorship in Judah. That phrase isn't used here, but that's what he's asking for. He's asking to be appointed as governor over the region of Judah for a certain time to oversee the rebuilding of the city. As we will read later on, this first appointment lasts for about a year, and he has to go back to the king in Persia, give an account of everything that's happened, and then his governorship is renewed for probably close to another 11 years. It takes Nehemiah about 12 years to complete this work. But this is what he asked for. He asks for an appointment to be governor over the region of Judah. But it doesn't stop there. He asks for letters to be sent to the other governors in the region beyond the river, that is, the river Euphrates, so that he could have safe travel to Judah. He asks for timber, showing that in his mind, he already had a plan as to how to conduct this rebuilding effort. It's a very big ask of the king. It's a very detailed ask of the king. It's a very thought-through request. It's very well planned. So well planned... And thought through that surely it impressed the king, who granted amazingly, in total reversal of his prior policy, he granted this request. Now let me say this, beloved. We may wonder at times why the Lord does not answer our prayer requests immediately. For Nehemiah, if it was God's will and promise that he would restore the Jews to Jerusalem, Nehemiah might have been tempted to ask over the prior four months of persistent prayer, God, when will you keep your promise? Why are you delaying? Why do I have to keep coming to you day and night and making this request? What are you waiting for? You promised to do it, just do it already. But do you see what Nehemiah was, what the Lord was doing in Nehemiah? over those four months of persistent prayer? Do you think that if the Lord would have answered Nehemiah's requests immediately, that Nehemiah, now before the king, would have given such a comprehensive and detailed response? I believe Nehemiah was given by the Lord those four months so that he could think through exactly What he would ask of the king when the Lord finally did answer his prayers. The reason his response is so clear, so comprehensive, so detailed is because the Lord, in his grace, gave Nehemiah four months to think it through. Does the Lord seem to tarry in answering our prayers, beloved? We can be assured it is not because the Lord is idle. He is doing something in and through us during those times of seemingly long silence, just as he was at work in Nehemiah. Those four months of not immediately responding, do you see, they were actually part of God, God's answer to Nehemiah's prayers. So it is King Artaxerxes of Persia granted the request of Nehemiah. And yet, beloved, wasn't it really the Lord who granted Nehemiah's request? And Nehemiah knows that to be true because he ends verse 8 by saying, The good hand of my God was upon me. You know, there are little statements like this, the good hand of my God was upon me, that really make me stop and marvel a little bit. I I was thinking about this after last week's sermon Because last week we saw how Nehemiah confessed his sins before God. And he seemed to have full assurance that the Lord would forgive him of his sins. And the question that's raised is, you know, how is it that Nehemiah, a Jew, living in exile, had that kind of assurance? Had the assurance that God would forgive his sins. Had the assurance that the Lord was with him and his good hand was upon him. See, usually for the Israelites in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the assurance of forgiveness came from observing the sacrifices, the burnt offering, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings. Assurance of forgiveness came for the Jew when they saw the priest go and slaughter the animals, saw the blood and the fire and the smoke, and heard the priest pronounce forgiveness, all of that. For the Israelites, assurance that God was in their midst, that came from seeing the tabernacle or the temple, which represented God's dwelling place on earth. Usually, confidence that God's good hand was upon them came from participating in things like the fellowship offering, the peace sacrifice, where the Jew would take an animal and they would have the priest sacrifice it. And the priest would burn the entrails on the altar Uh, symbolizing that God was consuming part of the sacrifice, but they would then eat of the meat of that sacrifice, showing that they now had communion with God, that they were reconciled to God, that they could share a meal with the holy God. That's how the Jew was given assurance that God's good hand was upon them. But Nehemiah never, not even one time in his life, had any of those experiences. He never had one opportunity being born and raised in Persia to participate in the sacrificial system or have a priest intercede for him. Yet he knew his God, the Lord, is a God who forgives. He knew that through repentance and faith, he was reconciled to God. He had remarkable assurance in that truth. And why? Because he understood what so many Jews in his day, so many Jews today, and beloved, yes, so many Christians today do not understand. His faith was not to be placed in the priests or in the sacrifices or in the temple. Is that that his faith was to be placed in the one who was to come. His faith was to be placed in the one to whom all of those things pointed. His faith was to be in the Messiah, in the Christ. Nehemiah had the assurance and confidence he had, beloved, because in a very real sense, you could say he was a Christian. Now, he did not know the details, he did not know the name Jesus of Nazareth, he did not know of Christ's life and death and resurrection specifically, because none of those things would happen for hundreds of years but he knew that the Lord had promised to send a Messiah, a Christ, who would make atonement for his sins, who would be his great high priest, who would bring eternal peace between him and God, who would be Emmanuel, God with us. He knew the Lord would keep his promise. So he had absolute faith in the one whom the Lord would send to save him. That was the source of Nehemiah's confidence. That was how it was that Nehemiah knew the good hand of his God was indeed upon him. He lived his life in light of that confidence. His hope, his faith was in the Lord and in the Lord's Messiah. It was in the Christ. It was in the promise-keeping Lord beloved. That's why he lived faithfully in exile. All those little statements about how faith penetrated the whole of Nehemiah's life. Why did he live the way he lived? Why was he faithful in a pagan society? Why was he faithful in a worldly secular vocation? He was faithful because he had faith in the Christ. He had faith in his God. He was able to live faithfully in a pagan society. Able to serve faithfully in his vocation. He was able to persist faithfully in prayer because he knew, as we know today, beloved, that ultimately it was not his faith in the Lord which gave him success. He knew it was the Lord's faithfulness to him the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, that is what gave Nehemiah success. And so he could say with great joy, the good hand of his God was upon him. Beloved, the good hand of our God is upon all of us, all who look in hope and trust and faith to the Christ, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord.